Well, again, welcome to Freedom Online. We are so glad to have you be a part of uh, worship on this Palm Sunday. And Tony, thanks for doing a great job of uh, leading us in worship and uh, just helping us to really turn our hearts toward the Lord and to celebrate what this day is all about. I, I'm so excited about today and, and what God has for us today. Palm Sunday and Holy Week are just always uh, such a special time. I just believe that God always wants to do a fresh and, and deep work in us. And I hope that today is going to just help you to begin to enter into that. As Tony said, even though there's only just a, a tiny few of us in the room, uh, it doesn't feel like that. Real worship's been happening in this place, and uh, and we truly feel like we're we're almost in the same room with you as we have worshipped with you, even though we're scattered around. And uh, we thank you so much for being a part of worship in this way. We're going to be uh, in the scriptures in Matthew 21. If you've got your Bibles, I want to encourage you to turn there with me as we look at a passage and a message that I'm entitling, Welcoming Jesus as King. If uh, maybe you are uh, tuning into this and the whole idea of faith is new to you, or maybe it's been a while since you have been in church or, or in the Bible, I'll just remind you that what we celebrate today at the beginning of Holy Week and specifically on Palm Sunday, we recall that most significant week in all of human history when Jesus, after spending three and a half years ministering throughout uh, Israel, returned one more time to Jerusalem with a large number of people lining the way, lining the streets, and welcoming him, shouting his praises, expecting him to come and assume the throne in Jerusalem, hoping that he's going to bring a lot of relief, a lot of help for, for them. And, and so they're shouting things like Hosanna, praise to the son of David, uh, believing that this is the week that, they're, that he's going to just make everything right for them. And no one had any idea what would actually unfold. But in the course of the following five days, that the cheers would turn to chants of crucify him. And by Thursday night, he would be arrested. Friday, he would be executed. But the next Sunday, he would rise from the dead. We remember and celebrate all of that this week. But we begin with Jesus' triumphal arrival in Jerusalem, hailed as the reigning king. I want you to, to read along with me, beginning in verse 1 of Matthew 21, where it says, As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. This is a fulfillment of prophecy. Uh, we don't know the details of exactly how this unfolded, if Jesus had this prearranged, or if he was just using his ability to know what was going on uh, beyond his line of sight. And as the Messiah and King of the world laid claim to, to what he needed to lay claim to, it doesn't really matter what the background is. The thing that probably is significant that's going to happen as a result of this is where in the past Jesus has, the last few times he's come to Jerusalem, he sort of had to slip into town because there was such a, an uprising among the religious leadership already trying to take his life ahead of time. And so he's had to be very careful in his comings and his goings. And the disciples had no desire to go to Jerusalem because things were so tense. And, and there was already such a sense of a price on their heads. And this time, 
Jesus sends word ahead to let people know that he is coming. He is letting the word get out, and it works. The, the streets are lined, and people are getting stirred up. And so in verse 6, the disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them, and they brought the donkey and the colt, and they placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on, sort of a makeshift uh, saddle for royalty there for Jesus. And a very large crowd then spread their cloaks on the road while others cut branches from the trees and spread them out on the road. It was just their way of, of just trying to, it, it was uh, ancient pom-poms. It was their way of saying, we are for you, we, we, we are with you, and that's why we do cut branches and we, we wave them on Palm Sunday declaring, Jesus, you are king and we welcome you. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. That, that word Hosanna, it literally meant save us. It, it was a cry for, for the Savior to come and deliver his people. And over time it had just sort of morphed into just being an exclamation of praise. That we, we believe that you are the Savior. We're inviting you come and save us. And when they call Jesus the son of David, it's a prophetic term for the Messiah. We, we believe that you may be the one, the one that God would send to save his people. And so you come. David was the greatest king Israel ever had. And they're looking at Jesus saying, we believe you might be able to be a king like David who was, was brave and against incredible odds. He could always run the enemy out. And we trust that you, Jesus, could be the Messiah, the son of David, and that you could get rid of our enemies. And when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, who is this? And the crowds answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Jesus entered the temple courts and drove all out all who were buying and selling there. Now, I will tell you, uh, Matthew gives us sort of the Reader's Digest compressed version of what's happening here in the next several verses if you read all four gospel accounts, you, you discover that actually on Palm Sunday, Jesus went into the temple courts. It was late in the day. He looked around. He sized things up. And as you can imagine, the crowd's dispersing. The money changers are dispersing. And Jesus decides he's going to come back the next day on Monday when there's a full crowd and when the money changers are all in full swing uh, making their loot. And that's when he's going to take care of business. And that night, Sunday night, He's going to go back across the Kidron Valley, about a mile back to Bethany, and he's going to take ropes, and he's going to plait a whip to come in and take care of business the following day. And that's what we read that, that Matthew's describing as we continue in verse 12. When he returned, Jesus overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to those that he said to them, that my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Even the children are joining in and declaring that Jesus is the Savior. Do you hear what these children are saying? They asked him. Yes, Jesus replied. Have you never read from the lips of children and infants, you, Lord, have called forth your praise? And he left them, and he went out to the city of Bethany where he spent the night. And then we get this strange little account that's actually very important for what we're looking at today. Early in the morning, as Jesus was on his way back into the city, he was hungry, 
And seeing a fig tree by the road, he went up to it, but found nothing on it except leaves. And then he said to it, May you never bear fruit again. And immediately the tree withered. And when the disciples saw this, they were amazed. How did the fig tree wither so quickly, they asked. And Jesus replied, Truly I tell you, if you have faith and do not doubt, not only can you do what was done to the fig tree, but also you can say to this mountain, Go and throw yourself into the sea, and it will be done. If you believe, you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. Such a powerful picture. Jesus has operated for the past three and a half years with the anointing, the power, and authority that he had as the, the only begotten Son of God. But he always did it in a way that attempted to slow the rate of his gaining popularity. You'll remember so many times when Jesus would heal someone or set them free of, of demonic oppression, the very next thing that Jesus would say is, don't tell anybody. And it wasn't because he had anything to be ashamed of. It wasn't because in the, in the grand scheme of things, he didn't want anybody to know what he had done. But in the moment, what he needed to prevent was a groundswell of people running to him, sort of forcing a situation where he would be brought into the forefront to have to, to be king, where, where it would create a scenario where he either assumes power or there's a great conflict because of all these people supporting him. And so he's always trying to kind of calm that down. He's always slipping away to get away from the crowd. And now, over time, there's become such an awareness of Jesus and his following, in spite of how much Jesus has been trying to slow this down prior to the cross, that the religious leadership, they hate Jesus. They feel threatened by Jesus. So Jesus, in his previous, most recent visits to Jerusalem, has just gone in very quietly, sometimes under cover of darkness. You'll remember in John 11, when Jesus is having to return to raise Lazarus from the dead, the disciples did not want to go. They said, if we go there, one of them said specifically, Thomas said, well, if we go, let's just go and die with him, because they assumed they would die if they returned to Jerusalem. So they would sort of tend to go in and out quietly and unnoticed. But what I want you to see is never read the account of what Jesus does on Holy Week as if Jesus is the victim. That Jesus comes in to do good, but, but he's shocked that, that people don't take it right, and he's arrested, and, and that he's the victim of, of what they do, that, that he never saw it coming, because that's not the case at all. Jesus is the one who is driving the narrative. Jesus came to earth not only to show us who God is and what he's like, but he came to die and to rise again. And so when Jesus marches in this time, understand what we just read follows on six solid months of Jesus from the time that he's taken the disciples to Caesarea Philippi, Caesarea Philippi until they return to Jerusalem. He's been telling them explicitly for six months, guys, here's what's coming. We're headed for Jerusalem. When we get to Jerusalem, you need to understand I'm going to be arrested. I'm going to be spit on and, and beaten, and I'm going to be put on trial, and ultimately I'm going to be put to death, but I will rise from the dead. And they couldn't make any sense out of how that could possibly be a part of the plan. They're thinking that must be something figurative, but Jesus is saying, no, no, this is what's coming. And so when they finally get to Jerusalem, Jesus is not slipping into town. Jesus is loud and proud. He is the king of the universe. He is the creator. He is the one who made everything that exists. He holds it all together by his powerful spoken word. And now it is as if Jesus is stepping out of the shadows and saying, I am here. 
I am Lord of all creation, and I am marching in as the reigning king. And as he does, people are like for a moment beginning to see him for who he is. And Jesus is being very intentional about making his presence known because he's bringing everything to a head now. The time has come. It is the kairos of God, the fullness of time, and he is going to to bring this thing to a head, and he's specifically bringing it to a head by going to the heart of, of the wicked way that the religious power players, I mean, this is like spiritual mafia in the first century, the religious, Jewish religious leaders and what they have going on in the temple courts, and Jesus is going to attack their flow of money. This would be the equivalent in, in the 20th or 21st century of going to a place like Las Vegas and shutting down all of the casinos and then just waiting for the mob to show up. You can rest assured they'll be there immediately. You mess with their money, the mob's going to come. And that's what Jesus is doing. He's shutting down the flow of their wicked money knowing, oh, that's going to call them out and this is all going to come to a head. He's the one who's causing things to unfold on Thursday and Friday as they do. And so as we press into this story, there are really four things that I want you to notice about what it means to welcome Jesus as king. We we see in this scene a crowd of people who are doing just that. They're, they're welcoming him. They're celebrating him. They're essentially saying, we want you to be our king. Unfortunately, what we recognize through hindsight is that just as there's a crowd saying, oh, you're great, you're going to be the king, you're going to make life so much better and easier for us, within four or five days, a mob in that same city is going to be calling for Jesus' death. They're going to be chanting, crucify him. Because they don't understand what Jesus is doing. And when they watch what he actually does in Jerusalem, it doesn't satisfy what they're longing for. In some ways, I'm reminded of when I look at what the people are expecting when they welcome Jesus as king, I'm reminded of of some of the perverted versions of the gospel that are being presented in the West today, the, the lollipop version of the gospel, the prosperity gospel, where essentially we communicate to people, if you just come welcome Jesus as your king, you're going to be healthy, you're going to be wealthy, you're going to be wise. Jesus is going to make life so much easier for you. The people were hoping for that in the first century, and they were sorely disappointed because what they discovered is following Jesus is the richest experience in life, but it also brings with it a lot of hardship and difficulty. There's a lot of suffering involved. It doesn't match up very well with the twisted version of the gospel we hear so many times today. But what we see in this account is a beautiful picture of four things that really do happen, that really do change when Jesus truly is your king. I want you to follow along with me in this. Of these four things, I want you to notice three of them are things that are going to happen inside you. They are, they are transformational things that happen to you. And one of them is something that's going to happen around you. If you ask me the question, why do you choose to make Jesus your king? Why do you choose to be a Christian? Other than the obvious answer that, Jesus being my king allows me to be a part of the family of God and the kingdom of God. It brings the forgiveness of sin. God is my father. I have a personal relationship with him. Obviously, that's the number one reason. But right behind that, the things that I'm going to share today answer the question of why 
I choose to be a Christian. Why I am thrilled to have Jesus as my king because it changes me. It changes who I am and it changes how I live my life in the world. And it does the same thing in every one of us. So I want you to follow along as we consider four things that change when Jesus is your king. The first one is this from the story that we read. Greed is replaced with generosity when Jesus is king. And you may say, well, how do you get that out of the story? It's pretty straightforward. When Jesus comes into town, what is the first thing that he addresses? It's the greed of the religious leadership. And what he does there, it may not be obvious on the surface what this is all about, but just a little bit of explanation. When people came to Jerusalem for Passover, and that's what they're doing on that particular week, all Jews were expected uh, to, to make a pilgrimage to the temple. There's only It wasn't like there were temples all over Israel. There was one temple in Jerusalem, and so they were expected to come to Jerusalem and bring their offerings. They were to bring a financial offering, and they were to bring animal sacrifice at least once a year. And so Passover was a very, very busy time as people migrated to Jerusalem. Well, the religious leadership had figured out how to get just insanely rich off of what was going on there. When people would come, they wouldn't go into the temple building. It was a fairly small building, but it was surrounded by concentric courtyards surrounding the temple. The inner area around the temple, only the priests could go to, and it's, there's a wall around that. And then there's a courtyard with a wall around it where Jewish men could go. And outside of that's the court of the women with a wall around it that Jewish women could go to. And then the outer courtyard, which was really a huge area, was the area that Gentiles could come to. And it's that outer courtyard, it's, it's not in a building, it's just a big open-air area, that the Jewish leadership had turned that into a gigantic marketplace. But it, it wasn't like just any marketplace. This was where you had to go in order to bring your offerings, your financial offerings, and your animal sacrifices. But they had figured out how to make a ton of money off of both of these. Because in the first place, when you came to bring your financial offering, it was... There repeatedly in the Old Testament, God said, don't come to the temple empty-handed. You're to bring your tithes and offerings when you come. And so they would come to bring their money. But the religious leadership, their, their scam was they would say, you can't give us that Roman money. It's got Caesar's image on there. It makes it pagan money. We don't want that money. The truth is that's exactly what they wanted was that pagan money because it's spent. So they would say, you have to exchange that to temple money that doesn't have any image on it, and we'll do the exchange here. It's like in the airports. You see all the the different currency exchange booths. Well, they had currency exchange booths to to get temple money, but they would mark it up. You need to exchange $10 worth of Roman money. We'll be glad to do that. But uh, to get $10 worth of temple money, that's going to cost you $12. There's a fee. So just to give your offering, you got to pay a fee. And then the second way that they made their money was you come to bring your animal sacrifice. Well, they became the animal inspectors. You can't bring just any animal in the temple. We want to make sure that it's really a perfect sacrifice. And so they would inspect and they would basically turn down all of the outside animals. And they would offer as a substitute, you know, your animal, we see a little spot here. We, we see something that's not just perfect. But I'll tell you what, in place of your goat, in place of your ram, in place of your dove, we can offer you one just like it. And you can buy it right here. Well, of course, they, they made their animals available at a ridiculously high rate. It's, it's ancient price gouging. And so it's just pure greed. They're getting filthy rich at the expense of an impoverished people who are living under harsh Roman rule and and Jesus steps into that and he looks around he doesn't see healthy ministry going on 
He doesn't see people praying and worshiping, people meeting one another's needs. What he sees is just business and greed. And Jesus says, enough of that. He plats a whip and single-handedly runs them out of the temple court area, turning over their tables, making a mess of things, and welcoming people with needs. And the lesson that we learn from that is, when Jesus is your king, there is no room for greed. In fact, I can't think of any single characteristic that more clearly identifies the people of God, more so than generosity. I love the the account that's given by Luke in uh, Luke chapter 19 when Jesus encounters the little tax collector named Zacchaeus. We all sung about him in Sunday school when we were growing up. And when Jesus called Zacchaeus out of the tree and left the crowd to go and have one meal with him, here's a despised man whose life has been defined by greed. Jewish tax collectors conspired with the Romans, and and they essentially all ripped their own people off to line their own pockets. Zacchaeus was one of those. But after one meal, one encounter with Jesus, his heart was so changed that what he said in response was, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. He's not talking about his money. He's talking about his stuff. He's looking around his house, and he said, I'm so moved by by what I see in you and what I I hear from you. Jesus, half of what you see right here, I am immediately, this week, I'm giving a half of it to needy people around me. And I see needy people in every direction. I'll give it half half of it away immediately. And he goes on and says, and if I've cheated anybody out of anything, and oh, by the way, he has cheated plenty of people, I will pay back four times the amount. Now he's talking about money. And Jesus said to him, today... Salvation has come to this house. Now, let's be clear. Jesus isn't teaching a message that says, oh, if you give away enough stuff to the poor, your good deeds are what's going to get you into heaven. Never. That is not the teaching of Scripture. Faith in Christ is what brings us from death to life. It brings us into the family of God. But the Scripture is also clear that a faith that doesn't transform our behavior isn't a living, saving faith. Jesus watched what Zacchaeus did by immediately saying, I realize I have lived my life for the wrong things. And Jesus, if you're going to be my king, I know that means I've got to change. I've got to be generous. Zacchaeus sets an awesome, awesome example for each one of us. Being generous with our finances, being generous with our possessions. I, I would encourage you, if you've never done this before, take this as a challenge while you're stuck at home during this stay-at-home order. Go through your house, and as a starting point, just determine, I'm going to find 50 things that I'm going to give away. And you may think, well, good grief, I don't think I have 50 things I want to give away. I'll tell you this, you're going to be shocked. If you'll pick out 50 things to give away, you'll have a hard time stopping there. The first time I did this, I think I ended up stopping at at 200. I I set out to find 50 things to give away, and before I knew it, I had 100, and then way over 100. I mean, you just start looking around at things that you're really not using very often that you realize somebody else could make good use of that. Why don't you just do like Zacchaeus and decide, I've accumulated more than I need. I'm going to bless others with that. John the Baptist in Luke chapter 3, when he was preparing the way for Jesus to begin his ministry, He was preaching to this religious group, the the Jewish people. 
And he's calling out the fact that their lives no longer line up with what God has revealed of himself in the Old Testament scriptures. And he says, change your hearts and show by your lives that you have changed. And he says, I know what you're about to say. You're going to say, but Abraham is our father. It's sort of the equivalent of people today saying, well, there's nothing wrong with me. I go to church. I have a Christian family. I, I would tell the world that I'm a Christian. And he says, that means nothing. Just what you profess, just what family you came up in. Coming up in a Christian family doesn't mean anything. The axe is ready to cut down the trees, and every tree that doesn't produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. So the people asked John a really good question. They asked John, what should we do? And he answered so simply, if you have two shirts, share with someone who doesn't have one. And if you have food, share that too. I've got to tell you, one of the the neatest blessings that Jackie and I had this week was just being able to to do the share table here at the church, to just set out tables and set out some some food stuff and make an open invitation. If you've got food to share or paper products, whatever people would be in need of, you can come by and drop them off on Wednesday afternoon during this set time. And if you've got a need, come by and collect whatever you need. And it was so cool to just watch people. All you had to do was just post it on Facebook and people just start showing up and just sharing food and being creative about how they, they did that. Karen Wingert was such a, a great example. Everybody just, just did such a great job. Karen comes in and thought it was so ingenious. She, she brought a bunch of grocery bags tied at the top and inside each bag a jar of jelly, a jar of peanut butter, and a fresh loaf of bread. And she brought a bunch of those little packets like that. I just thought, how wonderful, how simple and ingenious just helping people in need, seeing people show up who, who had needs and who collected items but who had found some things that they could share from their own cupboard and dropping those at the table. Just so, so neat and profound to watch people sharing with others who are in need. In James chapter 2, James tells us this. Suppose a brother or sister in Christ comes to you in need of clothing or something to eat and you say to them, God be with you. I hope you stay warm and get plenty to eat, but you don't give them the things that they need. If you don't help them, your words are worthless, and it's the same with faith. It's, it is just, excuse me, it's the same with faith. If it is just faith and nothing more, if it doesn't do anything, then it's dead. James is just calling us out. It's not about what we say it's about putting words into action, putting faith into action. And tragically, across the board, the average American churchgoer gives on average 1% to 2% of what they earn away to help others through their church or through other causes. Friends, that's not generosity. That's greed. When Jesus is your king, the work that he does in us makes us naturally become a giving people. So let me just ask you two simple questions. Where are you being generous? Where are you being faithful with what you have in sharing with others consistently? And where do you sense that, that God is prompting you that you need to be more generous? Who do you need to be more generous with or how do you need to be more generous? That brings us to a second change that happens when Jesus is king, and that is that complacency is replaced with compassion. It says in verses 14 and 16 that the blind and the lame, after Jesus had cleared the temple, the blind and lame came to him in the temple and Jesus healed them. But the leaders asked Jesus, do you hear what these children are saying? 
Yes, Jesus replied, haven't you read the scriptures? And for they say, you've taught children and infants to give you praise. Now, the thing that I want you to notice in this is there are two groups of people who suddenly fill the temple courts when all of the crooks are run out. And that is the people who are sick or disabled and children. And the thing that's so significant about that is both of these are groups that were essentially excluded from worship. The children had nothing to offer financially, so the religious leadership had no use for them. Just keep them out of here. They're not going to bring any money in. Children are just a nuisance. And, and it's really kind of amazing how many times in scriptures kids were just looked at as a nuisance. Even the disciples would say, get the kids out of here. And Jesus would have to stop them and say, no, let the kids come to me. But specifically, those who were sick or who had disabilities in the first century were being excluded from the temple area from worship. The leadership looked at them and said, something's wrong with you. I mean, you must have done something really wrong that God would give you that kind of disability. You're crippled, you're blind, you've got some kind of skin disease, you can't come in here. Obviously, the judgment of God is against you, so you stay away. They had no concern for them. And the thing that Jesus brings clearly into focus is that those who are on the outside looking in are the very people that he's come for. Jesus clears out who's normally in the temple, and he ushers in those who have been excluded, those who've been on the outside looking in. And I want to tell you, you can count on this. The more you welcome Jesus as king of your life, the more you will find yourself burdened for and learning to love and really care for those that in the past you had been completely complacent about, or maybe you had even disdained in the past. Now, I want to go out on a limb and just be a little more specific with you. For some of us, that means that the work of Jesus in our lives over time means that racial prejudices that we've had, people that, that don't look like us, that don't have a, a home background that look like ours, that we have been prone because of our upbringing or whatever else to look down on others or to just not care for those kinds of people, those attitudes have to go. And the work of the Spirit of Jesus in us is to learn to love people who don't look like us. Whether that's an ethnic difference or a difference in terms of nationality. I'm so amazed to watch how the work of God in my life and in the lives of people that I watch is such that there are, there are whole people groups in the world that previously you've just never had any interest in. People that I had never taken notice of, and yet over time, as Jesus plants his heart and his passion inside of me, that gets transformed so that I'm burdened about people that I've never met before, that I've never seen before, because people that you've been complacent about, suddenly when Jesus is king, you begin to realize, I need to have compassion for these people. And so now let's really bring this thing closer to home. There are some specific groups today that very few people in the world seem to be interested in showing compassion to. And I want to name two of them for you. One is those who are refugees, and it's disturbing the massive numbers of people who are living as refugees in our world today. And the thing that, that demonstrates how little compassion most people have for them 
is that our number one concern is let's make sure our borders are closed so they don't have any chance to come here. And let's just assume that somebody else is going to take care of those people. The other group is illegal immigrants here in the United States. I just want to be honest with you. I am personally sick to death with listening to people who profess faith in Jesus rail against illegal immigrants as if they were some type of scourge on the on the face of the earth. Don't misunderstand anything that I'm saying. I'm not here today to say we need to open all of our borders or, or that I'm in favor of, of illegal immigration. I'm not in favor of any of those things. But let's be really clear. If Jesus were here today in the flesh, Jesus would not be fighting to figure out how he could get all illegal immigrants outside the United States or how to make sure that no illegal immigrant has access to any kind of aid here in the U.S. I am sick of hearing American Christians trying to defend the proper disbursement of government funds because only certain people have paid taxes, so only certain people should get benefits. I believe everybody should pay their taxes. I believe people should do their best to come in the country legally. But if Jesus were here, rest assured, Jesus would not be marching or posting trying to make sure that we don't let anybody get any benefits off of what we've paid. If, if Let's just say it straightforwardly. If you're that concerned about proper taxation, work for the IRS. If you're that concerned about the borders, go work for border security. But if you follow Jesus then please follow his example and decide I'm going to be more concerned about the people who are here than I am about the policies of of what we're going to do to get people out or keep people out. Let's just decide that the mandate of Jesus is to show compassion for whoever around us is in need. And Jesus would not be here trying to say, now let me see your driver's license. Let me see some certificate that shows me that you belong to be here. Why don't we decide we're not going to make it our primary concern as to how people became refugees or how people got into the United States. Let's pray for those who have to deal with that at a national level. But for us on the ground, could we please stop pretending that we are are being representatives of Jesus when we're doing our best to close the borders and get those people out of here? It's our job to love those people. And for whatever period of time they're around us, to show them compassion. When Jesus is your king, generosity and compassion become the hallmarks of our lives. And it's time that we stop lying to ourselves and saying that we're saying that we're doing these things because it's just the right thing to do. When the truth of the matter is, what is driving our agenda politically so many times, is these are the moves that would ensure our continued financial security. That's what drives the issue. Jesus was sickened by a religious system that was all about financial security, growing financial wealth. And Jesus ran that out of the church, out of the temple courts. It's time for us to decide if Jesus is king, Though we're proud to be Americans, we owe a much greater allegiance to a kingdom and the ruler of that kingdom. And what he defines for us is that love 
compassion, mercy, and justice trump everything else. There's a third thing that changes when Jesus is king. And this is one of those, this is the, uh, of the four, this is the one that happens around us, not within us. And that is that indifference is replaced with indignance. It says in verse 15, as Jesus is healing all of these people who are in need, and you would think people would be cheering for that and excited, but it says the leading priests and the teachers of the religious law saw these wonderful miracles and heard even the children in the temple shouting, praise God for the son of David, but the leaders were indignant. I just want to offer a warning to you today. If you make Jesus your king, And when I say that, I'm talking about moving way beyond cultural Christianity where we just say, well, yeah, I'm I'm a Christian. I, I go to church. No, where Jesus is your king, where your agenda for the day and for the week, that your agenda for the rest of your life is dictated by the king. He is your Lord. When you do that, some people are going to celebrate that. But there are other people who in the past had never been offended by you or bothered by you they didn't worry about you and suddenly they will be indignant about you and the way you live your life and the things that you value and the things that you say and the things that you post i'll give you an example the words that i've spoken in the last five minutes have made some people who have in the past loved me and counted me as a friend are feeling pretty indignant right now you know it's a fact There are people who are ticked over what I just said about showing compassion to people who need it. But it doesn't line up with what you've been posting or what your political stance or what your news group is saying. At some point in our lives, we've got to stop being politically correct and we've got to stop rolling with a culture. Jesus being your king means at times you're going to do things that people are not going to applaud. They're going to look at you and go, I think that's foolish. I do not think there's any wisdom in that. I don't think God would lead anybody to do that. I mean, it's easy to think of any number of circumstances where God's going to lead you to do things financially that people are going to go, well, that's nuts. I mean, can you imagine Zacchaeus' friends going, whoo, that's a smart move, man, giving away half your stuff and repaying whatever you've stolen four times over. That's a great move, Zacchaeus. No, his friends, his circle of friends are going to go, you have lost your ever-loving mind. Only a fool would do what you're doing in the same way that Those of you who in the future are going to go with us to Nigeria when we get past this crisis that we're in right now, there are going to be friends of yours who are going to say, you are crazy. That is one of the most dangerous places in the world, according to all the terrorism lists. You'd be a fool to go there. And yet when Jesus is your king, you do what God calls you to do. There are going to be a lot of things that he'll call you to do that people won't applaud. They'll be indignant because you did it. I mean, here's one of the things God's teaching me right now in my own life, and that is... If we're going to be a witness in the world, we can't just do what's expected because nobody will notice. I mean, I hear people a lot of times who will say, I just try. I'm not a real big verbal witness, but I just witness for Jesus by my example. I just go to work. I do what I'm supposed to do. I don't lie. I don't cuss. I don't cheat. I go to church. I read my Bible. I say my prayers. And that is my witness All of those are wonderful things. And I want to tell you, you will never lead anybody to Jesus by doing that. Nobody's going to take notice of anything by that. The truth of the matter is what I just described 
is descriptive of just an average life. The world doesn't even notice that. That's part of the reason that Jesus, when he's your king, he's going to lead you to do something outside the norm. He's going to lead you to do things that are surprising. They're going to surprise you. They're going to surprise people around you. And some are going to go, praise God. Only God would lead you to do that. And others are going to go, you're crazy. You're a fool if you do that. There will be people who are indignant and who oppose you. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount to his followers, people will insult you and hurt you. They will lie and say all kinds of evil things about you because you follow me. But when they do that, know that great blessings belong to you. Jesus said it plainly just three days later in John 17 when he's talking to his disciples, John 16 and 17, and he says, look, the world hated me first, rest assured, it's going to hate you too. Indifference is going to be replaced with indignance by people around you. And then the fourth thing, we end on a really good note here. When Jesus is your king, pretense gets replaced with power. I've been in church all of my life, and I've heard a lot of talk about power. But I'll just be honest with you, I, most of the time that I've been in church, I haven't seen a lot of power. been around Christians all of my life. Hadn't seen a lot of Christians that I see a lot of power in their lives. But I've lived long enough that I've been around some that there was tremendous authority and power that rested on them. I want to tell you, when Jesus is your king, power replaces pretense. We've all been around plenty of religious people that they go through the motions. They make a show of, of doing the right religious stuff. But you just don't see the power of God there. The last thing that we read in in the Matthew 21 account today was this peculiar little story where Jesus, on his way from Bethany, back across the Kidron Valley into Jerusalem, and he comes upon this fig tree. And I just think it's awesome how honest it is. Jesus is hungry, and he walks over to the fig tree. He can see the leaves on the tree, and when he gets up close to it, he realizes there's not a fig on this tree. And he just looks at it and says, you will never bear fruit again. And he walks off. Now, Matthew doesn't tell us this. Matthew gives us the compressed account. If you read the other Gospels, you discover this happened over a 24-hour span. He just did that part on Monday morning. He's hungry. He looks for figs. There aren't any. You are never going to bear fruit again. The disciples all heard this. They watch it. They don't see anything happen. And they go on into Jerusalem. Jesus clears the temple. All that happens. It's Tuesday morning that Matthew records the rest of what happens. On Tuesday morning when they pass back by, I mean, you can just picture it's probably Peter leading the pack who goes, whoa, 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 wait, guys. Y'all remember the fig tree? That sucker is dead. It is dead from the roots up. It's not just withered. It says literally from the roots up, this thing is a goner. And now they all stop. You can just picture everybody looking at Jesus going, what in the world? I mean, we thought it was kind of weird when you cursed the tree when we walked by it yesterday. But you didn't just curse it. You killed it. What is that about? Okay, if we have any tree huggers among us, God bless you. Don't take offense at Jesus over killing the tree. He's the Messiah. He's the king over all creation. This is the most famous fig tree in all of history. And we still talk about this fig tree. This fig tree lived for the glory of God and it died for the glory of God. He... Jesus used this fig tree to teach us one of the most fundamental and important lessons that you'll learn in the scriptures. It's a lesson we need to make sure we get today.
Why did Jesus kill a fig tree? He actually spells out the why for us. Scholars have at times tried to say, oh, it was all teaching us a lesson. The tree did not have fruit. And Jesus is teaching a lesson that if you do not bear fruit, that you'll die. Well, we know that that's certainly a lesson from Scripture, but that's not the primary lesson of what happened there. Jesus tells us what this was about in the account. Jesus is to the point in his ministry, he's not measuring the time he has left with his disciples in months or years, but he's measuring it in days and hours. It's Tuesday morning. By Friday, Jesus is going to be dead. He has precious few hours left to spend with the disciples, and he is realizing that there are still so many gaps to be filled in in terms of what they know and understand, and he sees an opportunity in the moment to show the disciples something really important that they need to grasp and that we need to grasp, and Jesus is teaching them a lesson about the power and authority that they possess. He speaks to a fig tree. He doesn't say, guys, let's have a time of prayer. We're just going to have popcorn prayer. Everybody pray whatever you need to for the, for the tree. And Lord Jesus, if it be your will, if you want this tree to die, let it die. No. Jesus just says to the fig tree, you will never bear fruit again. He curses it and it dies. What's the point? He makes the point when they ask him. Guys, you need to understand, every one of you, you have the power to say to this fig tree the same thing that I did. You have the same authority over it. In fact, guys, it doesn't just apply, apply to fig trees. You see the mountain over here? If that mountain becomes an obstacle in your life, you have the power to say to this mountain, you be moved, you be cast into the sea, get out of my way, and it will move. It will be cast into the sea because you possess this kind of power. The lesson is quite simply this. Jesus is king of all the universe. By his spoken word and authority, all things not only exist and have their being, but all things operate, live, or die. They exist or disappear. They live or die by the word of Jesus. When Jesus looks at you and says, wither and die, it withers and dies. And what Jesus was teaching was simply this. I confer to you the same power and authority. He said, you will be able to say to the fig tree. You will be able to say to the mountain. You'll be able to say, speak to whatever in creation, whatever in nature is an impediment to the work of God. What needs to happen, and it will happen. Because you do it in faith and you do it in my name. Friends, this has huge implications. This has huge implications for how we deal with opposition, how we deal with demonic attack and oppression, and how we deal with sickness. Because I want to tell you that the same power and authority that Jesus gave to speak to the fig tree and to speak to the mountain is the same authority that we have over sickness, over viruses, over things named COVID-19. I'm not going someplace weird and outside of Scripture with this. If you look at the Scriptures carefully, you see multiple examples of this. Places like in Luke chapter 4, where Jesus goes to visit Simon Peter's home. And we read there, now Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever. And they asked Jesus to help her. So Jesus bent over her and he rebuked the fever. And it left her 
And she got up at once and began to wait on them. Jesus didn't call for a prayer time. He didn't say, oh, Father, if it be your will and you feel like it today, could you make this fever go away? No, he spoke to the fever. He spoke to the illness. He is the king of the universe. He has authority over this, and with authority, he commanded it to go, and she's made well in that moment. And we're tempted to hear that and go, well, of course, he's Jesus. He can do that. But Jesus said, you will do that. In fact, three days later than what we've been reading in Matthew 21, on Thursday of that week, Jesus says, I can assure you that whoever believes in me. Let's say that one together again. Whoever believes in me. That's all of us in the family of faith. Whoever believes in me will do the same things I have done, and they will do even greater things than I have done because I am going to the Father, and if you ask for anything in my name, I will do it, and then the Father's glory will be shown through the Son. Friends, we are the body of Christ. We are the physical presence of Jesus here on the earth, the family of God who possess the same spirit the same Holy Spirit that Jesus had. So wherever we go, Jesus is now present through us, his spirit in us. So the same authority that he had, we get to speak with. And yes, that means we have a tremendous opportunity, especially in seasons like this, where sickness is so abundant. I mean, sickness is on the loose. Sickness is sweeping the earth. And yet we've been given authority over this. And I want to tell you, it applies to you. To pray with authority, not some feeble mamby-pamby prayer, or just if it be thy will, if you could just do something to slow it down. Jesus prayed, Father, if it be your will, one time. And that was was on the night when he was wrestling about going to the cross and taking the sin of the world on him that would separate him from the Father. And he was wrestling with just the ability to do that and saying, Father... If there's any other way, let it happen another way. But but if it be your will to do that, then I'll do that. In no situation where Jesus encountered sickness, oppression, the demonic, or anything else, did he go, oh, Lord, if it be your will, I know it's probably not going to happen. No, Jesus would take authority. He would pray in, in faith and with confidence, and he would take authority. You and I should do the same thing. And I'll tell you, it's only been in recent years in my life that I've really been stepping more fully into this, that I will pray and I'll ask for God's direction as I pray, and I'll pray for God to speak the words that would bring healing and wholeness or deliverance. But I take authority. I take authority over any demonic presence, and in Jesus' name, force that to leave. But I take authority over the sickness. And this is a prime example right now. COVID-19, it is a virus. It is a part of creation. And you, as the king's representative, you bring the king's power to bear. And you may say, well, then why hasn't it all been cured? I'll tell you my personal opinion. I think, though God didn't create this drama that we're living in, that part of God's redemptive work in the middle of this is that he is raising up a vast army of his children who have not operated in this power, who have not understood what we possess, and yet he is putting us in a situation that is so desperate that we're having to find our voices, we're having to find our faith and recognize we've got authority over this. When we encounter people who are sick, we have the authority to 
to pray over them and to speak to the sickness and to see them made well. And we have authority to speak to this virus and this sickness on a community level, on a national level, and on a global level. And I want to tell you, I'm going there. I'm going there regularly. I've got brothers and sisters who are doing the same thing. I'm praying for God's deliverance, but I'm also taking authority over this sickness and in Jesus' name telling it to wither and die to the glory of God. That's the lesson of the fig tree. We have authority. We have God's power. Now, I realize, I know the real thing. If we had a room full of people and we could talk back and forth, most people, I think, would say this. Preacher, in theory, I'm with you. In practice, not so much. I believe the truth of what you're saying. I just don't know how to make it happen. It doesn't work for me when I do it. I've had so many people say that. I want to just tell you the the little picture that God gave me about this. Jackie and I were out in the yard this, this weekend. I think all of us have been working in the yard, so we've been in a, in a lockdown mode. But we were out in the yard, and we've got big dead patches in sections of our yard. We were trying to figure out, you know, that it's obviously not getting water from the sprinklers and trying to deal with that. And the Lord just showed me a simple picture of, you know, you know what you do when you've got big dead patches in your yard, and every year it seems like May's real dry, October's real dry. We'll always have some dry seasons that the rain is not going to keep your grass green, and it will just look as dead as a wedge. We've got some sections so brown and so dead looking. And yet you know that if you get a hose and you carry it out to that section, that if you'll just water it really good a couple of times, what looks totally dead will spring back to life. I mean, just almost miraculously how how quickly it, it comes back to life. But what the Lord showed me is you, you know the simple remedy. Haul the hose out there and water the grass. Now, the reality is, most of the time, you don't have to do that where we live because God just waters it himself. We're completely cut out of the equation. But every year, there are going to be seasons where God isn't just going to, by his power alone, make it happen. There are always seasons of the year where we have to get involved in the equation. The hose has to be brought out to bring the water. We are the hose. The power and work of the Holy Spirit is the water. The hose does not cause the grass to come back to life. There's plenty of times that that a hose is laying out there and the grass dies around the hose. It's not the hose that saves. It is the water flowing through the hose. You and I are the hose. But here's the thing about a hose. You can recognize the problem. You can bring the, the potential conduit for the solution to the middle of the problem. But a hose alone does not water grass. A lot of us have lived like a hose sitting in the middle of a dead patch trying to figure out why there's no water flowing out of us. Well, I would suggest to you check three potential problems if that's the case. First of all, is the hose attached to the spigot? Nothing's going to flow from you unless you are personally placing your faith in Jesus and allowing him to be your king. Are you tapped into the spigot? Secondly, is the spigot turned on? You turn the spigot on in a very real sense each day by pressing into that relationship, spending some time alone with God, communing with Jesus, so that your heart is dialed in with his heart and you recognize what he's saying. There's a lot of us can say, all right, I can take both of those boxes. Jesus is my Lord. And I I spend time with Jesus. I go to his word. I pray on a regular basis. So why is there still not power flowing through my life? 
If you've done all of those things and there's still no water coming out, you know what the problem is. You've got a kink in your hose. You know what I'm talking about. Yeah, you know, I spent a lot of time power washing. I was power washing yesterday or the day before. Can't tell you how many times I'd be going along and the water would stop. I'm hauling the hose, but there's no water coming out. You look back, you always know what it is. That hose is pulled, and now it's doubled up on itself, and nothing's coming out. There's a lot of Christians that your life has got a kink in the hose. You know what that kink usually is? My thinking's not straight. I, I got a kink in my faith and in my thinking because something has led me to believe that I don't really have this power and authority. Something has convinced me I can't really do this thing. Something has convinced me that because I prayed and it didn't immediately happen or I tried this on somebody that I don't have this power. And at some point you have to make the determination to in order to unkink the hose. I'm going to have to decide that today and every day going forward, my thinking and my faith are not going to be driven by my past experience. They are going to be founded on the promises of God's word. And Jesus said, you will do what I have done. You will do even greater things. Whatever you ask for in prayer, believing it will happen. You say to this tree, you say to this mountain, wither and die, be cast into the sea, and it will be done to you to the glory of the Father and the Son. You just are going to have to make up your mind. It doesn't matter how many times in the past I prayed and didn't feel like it happened. I know that I am the conduit. I can't fix it. But the, the, the water that is the flow of God's Spirit will bring life and healing and change and deliverance through me as I give voice to this, as I believe what we're talking about here. When Jesus is your king, you have the authority of the king to speak life and blessing to destroy sickness and oppression. That's good news. That's a good reason to welcome the king. Would you join me as we turn our, our hearts and our attention to the one who is our king? Jesus, we worship you today. You reign. You are like no other. And we honor you as Lord and King. We bring you our lives, our brokenness, our selfishness, our greed, our complacency, our lack of faith. And we say, oh, Jesus, do a fresh work in us. Show us the people that we don't love and give us a fresh love for them. Show us ways to be generous and, oh God, increase our faith in the face of financial challenges and difficulty, in the face of sickness. Give us faith to believe you to provide and to heal and let the water flow through our humble hoses. Let it flow through us. Oh God, have your way in us. Forgive our unbelief, but increase our faith in you. Maybe today you're tuning in and the reality is you're not a part of the family of God yet. It's just you're a seeker. You've been exploring God and the Bible. You're just not sure. I want to encourage you today not to wait another day. Jesus is faithful. He is good. He is a worthy king. Would you make him your Lord and king? Why don't you just bow your head and just in the privacy of your own heart pray, Lord Jesus. I need you. 
I need you in my life to change me, to change how I think, how I live, and how I love. I ask you to forgive my sins, to make a new man or a new woman out of me. And I invite you to live your life through me. The best I know how, I give you all that I have and all that I am. Lord Jesus, I thank you for hearing and answering these simple prayers of faith. I thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit that seals the deal on those things. And oh God, we pray that you would pour out on us what we need as your people. We pray that you would pour out on this nation and on the world what we need. And Father, we pray for healing. We pray for a deepened faith for the church. We pray that you would raise up your church as an army of true believers who would trust you through this crisis and who would take authority that would be your instruments to bring healing and deliverance. We pray, God, that for the sake of your name and your renown, that you would stop the spread of this disease, that you would heal the sick, that you would protect caregivers. And, Lord, we stand in your name and we speak with authority to this sickness. We speak to this novel coronavirus and we say, in the name of Jesus, your power is broken. We command you in the name of King Jesus of Nazareth that you must wither and die, that you wither and die in the air, that you wither and die in the lives of men and women who are struggling with this. And we speak health and healing over people around the globe today in jesus name oh god have your way bring glory to yourself by the work that you do in us we welcome you king jesus and we pray this in your matchless name amen